Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, with the ESV version. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property um, in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. Thank you. Okay, on to you, Twain. Okie dokie. Good morning, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day 2021. Uh, let me give you a shout out real quick for a new series we're going to start next week. We're going to be uh, starting to teach through the Gospel of John. Uh, we started doing this in the uh, BDI small group that we had, and we got uh, a few chapters in, and uh, we sort of realized, you know what, this is a, well, at least I sort of realized, this is something I need to teach. Uh, as opposed to just doing it in a small group. So we're gonna do some serious deep, deep diving into the Gospel of John starting next week. But today, as Bill read, we're in Luke chapter 15, 
for our last message on the parables of Jesus. And my guess is, if you've been at church much at all, you know the story. Frankly, if you've never even been in church, you probably have heard it. Uh, but before we jump into it, we might take a look at what prompted Jesus to actually tell this story. What was going on before Jesus launches into this parable? Well, here's what was going on. There was a problem. And the problem was that Jesus was, in the eyes of some, hanging out with the wrong kind of people in town, right? He's hanging out with the wrong reputations. Uh, the reputations are giving the rest of Jews a bad name. And the more conservative religious types are getting really upset that Jesus isn't hanging out with them at their potlucks or whatever they're doing, but mixing with the riffraff of society. And they start mumbling and grumbling. You know, why is Jesus constantly buddying up with people like, like that? So Jesus kind of stops the whole parade in chapter 15. And he says, look, before, before we go any further, uh, I need to give you an understanding about something about who your God is and how he works. So he gives them three stories. The one we just read, that Bill just read, thank you, Bill, uh, was the third one. But the first two are pretty short, but they all emphasize essentially the same point. The first one was about a shepherd. Uh, God is like a shepherd who's got like 100 sheep, um, but one goes missing. Well, he leaves the 99 sheep to go out looking for the one. And when he finds it, there's incredible joy and celebration. But in case you don't happen to be a shepherd, uh, Jesus gives a second story about what God is like. And he says, God's like this woman who lost a silver coin. Now, maybe that's just a day's wage. Uh, significant, but not, 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 not holy. I mean, not, not, not everything. She didn't lose her whole uh, livelihood. But I think what Jesus is actually referring to is this. In the first century, when a woman got married, she would have a headdress with 10 silver coins. And it was a public sign when you wore that, that you were married, kind of like our wedding rings. And what happened is that this woman put on her headdress one day and realized, oh, one of the coins is missing. So she tore the place apart looking for it. You guys ever lost a wedding ring or an engagement ring, right? Down a drain or slipped off at the beach. Uh, some people could connect with that, right? And, and then I think Jesus may be thinking, okay, Maybe not everybody can connect with, you know, woman who's lost a wedding ring or something or the shepherd. So I'll try this third story to make a point. And basically, it's God's like a, a guy with uh, two sons. And it's a little bit of a dysfunctional family. And I suspect at that point, a lot of people in the crowd, maybe even here on the Zoom call, can relate all of a sudden. You might not be a shepherd, might not have lost your wedding ring. But my guess is you might have come from a family with a little bit of dysfunction. <laughs> so all of a sudden... Jesus has the crowd's attention. So he spends most of his time explaining what God is like through the lens of this sort of dysfunctional family, a dad with two sons. So he's got two sons and the younger one comes up and says, uh, okay, give me a share of the property that's coming to me. And the guy divided his property between them. Now I know that just seems like a goofy introduction, but we got to stop there for a second because Jesus loves telling stories that just rile the crowds up, where the audience goes, what, what is he talking about? This, this is absolutely insane. And that's already happened three sentences in. See, in the first century, especially in Hebrew culture, this thing would never happen. I mean, let me tell you about a dad who's worked hard his whole life, and the youngest son, not even the oldest son, who gets a double portion, right, comes up and says, 
hey, Dad, uh, thanks for busting your butt all these years, but I figure, you know, one day you're going to croak and I'm going to be uh, due an inheritance. I don't want to wait. I, I want to have it right now. Now, in Israel in the first century, that son's going to get slammed. I mean, can you imagine you going up to your dad when you were 18 and saying, okay, here's what I want you to do, Dad. I want you to give, uh, I want you to sell everything you have and give me half of it right now. How would that have gone for you? <laughs> yeah, when you regain consciousness, your siblings will be standing there going, you've done some pretty dumb things in your life, but that pretty much takes the cake. Well, put that on steroids in the first century. Now, what is crazier than the guy asking is that Jesus says the father actually does it. He gives the kid the inheritance. Now, that would have been hard for the crowd to set through the rest of this story, because at this point, they're thinking, this story is about a foolish dad. I mean, if dad's the God in this story, or if, God's the, if God is the dad, God must be the stupidest father ever. Yeah, the son's an idiot, but the dad who says yes to him has to be the biggest fool on the planet. And this is where Jesus goes, where he wants to get people, uh, get across to people who are listening that, you know what, you need to understand something about who your God is. And if you forget who your God is, then you've forgotten who, who, how to see life. So let me tell you about a dysfunctional family and what appears to be an incredibly stupid father. And you don't know it yet. We don't know it yet. But by the end of this parable, you're going to really love the foolishness of that father. Jesus' crowd wasn't there. Maybe you're not either. But uh, if that's not the case, things go from crazy to crazier. Son gathers everything he has, goes away to a far country, squanders his property, a famine arises. Okay, think God's not still in charge of things. Then he begins to be in need. He hires himself out and he ends up in the field feeding pigs. Um, not a good place for a Jewish boy to be, right? So this inheritance that he had made available to the son everything he ever wanted to do. No restraints. Goes off to a distant land. He has anonymity. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. And an inheritance like that can last for a while. It can buy some friends, but he falls on tough times. There was no uh, wise investment. You know, he wasn't using Dave Ramsey techniques <laughs> handling his money. And the inheritance runs out. And so do his friends. Now, maybe he uh, earned enough friendship to sleep on a couch for a little bit or is over a garage. But at some point, all the doors are closed to him. Now, we don't know for sure whether back home, dad and the other son have any clue what's going on with this youngest. But we imagine back on the farm, the oldest son's life might be getting a little harder, right? With dad growing older, uh, the older son has to take on the, not only the responsibilities of the younger brother, but increasingly maybe the duties of a dad who's getting older and less able. And uh, it's pretty clear from what we see in the rest of the story, he ain't particularly enjoying this turn of events, especially when bro is out there having the time of his life. And if word did somehow get back to, the, to this family about the plight of the kid brother, you got to know that the older brother is going, super, I'm glad. I'm glad he's getting what he deserves. And the kid is at rock bottom. In Jewish terms, he's with the pigs, the most unclean of all the unclean animals. And this finally forces, because he's at his wit's end, some deep thinking. And it says this, it's interesting. He says, but when he came to himself, <clears throat> a lot of versions of this passage right there. It says, but when he came to his senses, <laughs> when he came to his senses, and he goes, okay, my dad's servants aren't starving. I'm going to go back to my dad, but I got to think of something to say to him. Okay. I got to tell him I've sinned against you and against God, against heaven. 
I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Man, just treat me like a servant. I mean, at least they're not starving. And he arose and went back home, started back home, right? My guess is he's probably rehearsing his little speech all the way home to make sure he gets it right because he knows he's only got one, going to get one shot at it. And uh, so maybe when he gets close enough to home, sees the farm, sees the house, maybe he stops, takes a, takes a little bit of a deep breath, rehearses for the last time. But it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, hiked up his stuff and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, he could have been gone a month, uh, months or years. We, we don't know. But from this account, it seems that the dad was always on the lookout, you know, just kind of like the shepherd looking for that lost sheep or the woman looking for that lost coin. And maybe it was the first thing he did in the morning. Maybe the last thing he did at sundown, now check the horizon for any sign of my boy. And then finally the silhouette arrives and appears and dad knew. Maybe no one else would have recognized that kid anymore, but dad knew. And he doesn't walk, he bolts and runs. And if you're, out, if you're the kid out there, you're probably thinking, okay, dad is so mad, he's gonna probably just pummel me to death. Um, he's gonna probably tell me to get back where I came from. No, don't even show up here. He has to be the last person on earth to expect what happens next. An embrace, a kiss, a robe, a ring, slaughtered calf. Son tries, tries, tries his best to get out his speech, but he only gets, he only gets a, a couple sentences in before his dad interrupts him and, and says, okay, get all, the, get all the good stuff here. Let's get going. Let's have, let's have a celebration. And it finally begins to dawn on the son, I think, that the whole time he was gone, his dad was in mourning, looking for him ever since he left. Yeah, this is, this is God, the foolish dad who, through Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. And this boy is just in disbelief that this is all happening. He just called me his son. This makes no sense. I don't deserve this at all. But man, am I happy about it. And then abruptly, Jesus in the story changes the scene because there's something else going on here. While this celebration is happening, right, the older brother is out in the field. What's he doing? Yeah, he's working for uh, doing all the work for the, that the kid that left isn't doing along with, with his work. I mean, maybe some of dad's too. He comes back and he hears music and dancing and he says to one of the servants, what's this all about? Oh, your brother's come back and your father's killed a fattened calf. Or, oh, we're having a party. Well, not surprisingly, he's angry, refused to go in. See, my point is this. There's a second son who's kind of lost too. And he reveals it, maybe for the first time. And this next sentence is key. It says this, his father came out and entreated him. Entreated him. The same dad that ran out to meet the younger son is the same dad that now goes looking for the older one. Why? Because both of them were kind of lost sheep. Both of them were kind of lost coins. He finds him and pleads with him to join in. And he must have asked him something like, hey, what's going on? Because we're told that the older son responds to the father. He says, look, I've served you all these years. Never disobeyed a command. You never made me, gave me a young goat. I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you've done all this for him. Seriously, dad, my whole life. You told us how to do things right. 
how to conduct ourselves. All my life, I've been busting it here for you. All my life, I've been doing it your way. Never disobeyed, never turned my back on you, never let you down. You never threw a party for me. I've never celebrated like you're doing for this guy, but he comes home. The guy who ruined our family's reputation, going against everything you stood for, and now you're throwing a party? Well, excuse me, but I'm not attending this party. And I, my guess is he might not even be able to believe what just came out of his mouth. All that whatever that's been, he's been holding on to inside. And then dad sums him up. And, and the words are, are calm and carefully chosen and calculated. And the dad says to the son, son, not an unimportant word. You are always with me and all that mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Basically, you already just told his kid, son, did you forget the second sentence in this parable? I divided everything up between the two of you. Since the day I did that, everything that you see here has belonged to you. Who told you you had to be a slave to me? So we don't know, of course, how a person could get that bent. Maybe it was Sunday school. I didn't go up in a church with a Sunday school like this, but I know that they exist because they did in my town, in a little town in Indiana. But this, this son, I think, grew up in this kind of church. You know, the Sunday school teacher pulls up the flannel graph, puts a, you know, a great castle and a river flowing from on one side and then a, a, a fire on the other side and says, well, kids, you know, one day you're going to die. Little Timmy, yeah, on your way home from church today, you, you could get hit by a bus, truck, die. But if you say this prayer right now, and then you die, you'll get streets of gold, this castle, this wonderful mansion. But if you don't say this prayer, you're probably going to burn in hell. How many of you kids want to say this prayer right now? And of course, everybody did. Because who wants to go to hell, right? Okay, and then the teacher says, okay, now that you've done this, just serve God the rest of your life, you know, obey him and you'll get there. I got to tell you, that is a pathetic picture of Christianity, but so many people buy it. The older brother did, I think. This concept that God's favor has to be earned and worked for and deserved, and the older brother doesn't yet believe he's earned it or worked hard enough for it, and he's got to do more. Then the younger brother comes home, and the older one knows that younger bro blew it. He knows what that sibling has earned and deserves, and it ain't no party. Dad, all my life I've been trying to earn this, and I've never felt comfortable celebrating with my friends because I've not yet arrived at deserving it. And the same dad, the same foolish dad that dropped everything to run out to the younger one is the same foolish dad that goes after the older one. And dad doesn't bring up morality or what they work for or what they deserve. He brings up a title, first word out of his mouth, son. Son, this has and forever will be yours. Who told you to work for it? Who told you to be a slave to this? So what can we learn from this first century family and foolish father? A father that gives everything, a father that doesn't punish, a father that receives back with no questions asked. So I've got four little family truths here. We've touched on some of them, but I want to make sure you remember them. First family truth, God loves people enough to let us leave. If you read scripture, you find this truth throughout the Bible. Read, this, read the Old Testament. How many times does God allow his people to desert him? Read Romans 1 in the New Testament. 
God says, even though people know God, they chose not to glorify God. So it says God gave them over. He let them go on, you know, okay, you want to fulfill your lust, your whatever, all your desires, God will let you leave. It's the rich young ruler in Mark 10 that comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I got this life pretty much clocked. I'm keeping all the, I'm keeping all the commandments. I just want to make sure that when I die, I get heaven. Jesus says, oh, then give me your life. Sell everything. Get rid of it. Come back and follow me. And the guy decides, nah, that's too big a price to pay. All I want to do is make sure I get to heaven. He walks away sad. Interestingly, in that story, Jesus doesn't pursue him. He lets him go. So when Jesus stops the parade and tells the people what is the first thing they need to get about this God of theirs, this father of theirs, many that call would call a foolish God, it basically says he will give you a life and let you walk out the door with it. He knows where you are. He knows the pigs you're with. He knows what's going on. But he's not going to come and hijack you and force you. He's going to let you live the type of life you want. But if in the mess that you create, you happen to look up and you change your mind, you come to your senses, you repent, you return, you're going to find a God who's been looking for you and looking for that to happen all along. And as we look at the older brother, kind of sad, but God will also let you live the kind of Christianity you want, even if it's joyless with no celebration. He's the God that will let you go to your goofiness of trying to earn his favor rather than celebrate that you've already received it and it's been freely given to you. He created us with free will. He respects that decision so much that he leaves those choices up to us, hoping that the mess we create will drive us eventually to come to our senses. Speaking of senses, the second family truth, ultimately turning to God is the only option that makes any sense. I love, I love verse 17. When he came to himself, when he came to his senses, sitting in the sitting in the pig field or whatever he's doing, when you start thinking clearly, turning to God or returning to God really is the only option that makes any sense. <clears throat> Proverbs 14 says, you know, we can get to a, such a place that we, we are doing things that we think make sense, that seems right to us, but in the end, they're just bad choices and they, they lead to death. You, you, you can take your life and do what you want. But maybe you come to a place where you realize that when you live your life your way, it ends up not making too much sense. It leaves you searching. It leaves you wanting. It leaves you hollow inside. Look, if you're married and you decide you're going to do marriage your way and rather than God's way, it's going to produce a lousy marriage. No fulfillment, no intimacy, nothing but keeping score. I got to tell you, everything that in my life I've decided to do my way rather than God's way ultimately leads me, forces me to come to my senses. Maybe you've heard about the freedom we have in Christ. And you laugh because you check out the size of the Bible and all the do's and don'ts. It sounds like bondage to a lot of people. But you come to find that all, all that freedom to go your own way actually leads to more bondage than you can take. Guilt and shame and dissatisfaction and lack of fulfillment, no value, purpose, or significance, constantly wearing a mask, afraid people are going to actually see who you really are. Whoa, the freedom that you have when you say coming back to God is the only thing that makes any sense. How delightful is a life devoid of guilt and shame and well and just wa washing in the in the in the grace that god gives us so after searching everywhere and everything else this guy came back to his senses came back to dad came back to god it made sense all right third family truth the road back home starts with an attitude change think about verse 12 the younger brother says to his father give me 
give me, give me the, give me my inheritance. When we come to God and our attitude is, yeah, you know what? I, I, I think I've earned the right to demand God that you give me this, that you answer this prayer this way, that you deliver me from the consequences of my choices and on and on. This is, this is what I deserve. This is what, this is why you need to do what I say here because I've, I've earned the right to demand of you. And that's what started this entire story or downward spiral for this kid. I get to make my own decisions. I don't really need, need you. I just need you to deliver. I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong. Give me my life. But look what happens in verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Next two words, make me. Make, compare that to give me. The core of our being broken before God is make me. That's when you really come home. God, whatever you want to do is fine. Make me whatever you want. And this is where I'm going to get a little personal. We need to ask ourselves, what percentage of our prayers are give me versus make me? How much when we talk to God, is it, God, give me, give me this, give me that. Jesus says, let me, let me, let me tell you about your heavenly father. He loves you foolishly. He will ultimately give you what you want, allow you to live the life you want. And if your stance is give me, he'll let, he'll let you go. But prayers are make me of make me are kind of a lot, probably a lot rarer. You know, where we decide we're going to give him control of our lives and say, God, make me, make me whatever you want. It's okay, God, to change me. How much of our prayers are God bless me versus God change my heart? We all want God to bless our lives, right? I'm not sure that Jesus died on the cross just to bless our lives and give us whatever we ask. He died on the cross to give us life and to change our life. What do you think new life in Christ really means? Something's changing, isn't it? And when we get to the point where we come and say, God, what do you want to make me today? Whatever you want to make me today is fine with me. I'm in. It's an ownership change from it's mine to I'm yours, God. When the younger brother got to the point where he realized that the problem was himself, came to his senses. A lot of people get to that point and they shake their fist at God because we don't like the consequences we're reaping. A lot of cases, those consequences began when we chose disobedience, when we chose to leave God. Younger brother could have done that, I guess. Blame God for allowing him to end up with the pigs. God, you know, if you knew this was going to happen, why'd you let me, why'd you let me leave? Why didn't you stop me from leaving home? Instead, it says he came to his senses. He came to his right mind. He realized he was where he was because of his decisions that led him there. And he returns as a heart with a heart of brokenness. Dad, just make me. He'd be happy to be a servant. You can make me a servant. Dad says, how about this? How about a son? How about I make you a son? Fourth family truth, unconditional love got to be accepted, not earned. Looking at the, that older son again. It's a little bit like Luke chapter 10, where Jesus goes to the house with two sisters, Mary and Martha. He's going to have, there's going to be a dinner with Jesus and the disciples. So you can imagine it's all hubbub. It's all getting ready. It's getting the house ready. <clears throat> but Mary just sits down and starts listening to Jesus. And Martha has so many things she's got to do. She's like the older son carrying the load of the son, the other younger son as well, doing all the work. Things get really frantic. In her frustration, she eventually barges in and says, Jesus, don't you care that Mary's just sitting here doing nothing while I'm doing all this work by myself? And then she, I love this, she, she orders Jesus around. I'm sure that's going to really work. Tell her to get up and help. 
And if there's other disciples already arriving, I got to tell you, the place is going to get quiet because not even Peter's going to talk when there's an angry woman, a woman screaming at Jesus, right? <laughs> so see, the problem is we can often celebrate Martha's at church if we're, if we're not careful. Yeah, the Martha's are the ones who are working really hard for the Lord. They might be on stage. They might be preaching. They might be serving. They're killing it. We might even bring them up on stage and applaud. Truth is, they might be doing it because God is in charge of their life and they're simply following Jesus or being empowered by the Spirit. And that'd be awesome. But they also might be Martha, striving and working hard to show that they are worthy of God's love. We might not be able to tell the difference, but God knows. But if we called one of those Marthas up and they were brutally honest, they might confess that for all of their Christian life, they've never felt qualified. They've never felt, they've never felt embraced. They've never felt loved by God to, to the extent, right, that they could celebrate in that relationship. Never feeling like they match up to God's expectations. Never really felt like a son or daughter of God who's been given everything as an inheritance. So what are we going to say? To, what would we say to such a person? Well, you need to try a little harder? I don't think so. Martha, why don't you try harder? No, no, that's not the answer. Listen, God, your father, is going to run out to you and ask, who in the world told you you had to be a slave to me to work harder to get into my good favor? You are already wearing a title that says, son, daughter, and all of my, all of what is mine is yours by title as son and daughter. Who told you you had to work like a dog for this? Again, maybe it was Sunday school. Maybe it was the voice of a parent. Maybe a voice from your past that told you, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to earn it. You're never going to make the grade. You'll never jump high enough. And sometimes we confuse that voice with the foolish father's voice, with God's voice, because God doesn't run out and say, show me what you've done to please me. That's not what he says to the the young whippersnapper that, that, that went astray. Now, he's the guy that runs out and confirms that you're a son and a daughter and that all he's given uh, to you is all that he has. He's held nothing back. You don't earn it. Look, look, you can never earn your salvation, right? You can never earn it even if you tried. You know, you don't have to earn God's love. You know, he loved you before you were even his. How good do you think you have to be to earn his love? Perfect. Stupid to think you'd ever get there. So guess what? We need to come to our senses. Look, if, you, if you're a parent, you get this. If you're, if you're a halfway decent parent, you get this. You love that kid of yours, don't you? Not because they've done something so miraculously wonderful all the time. You love them because they are yours. They're your son. They're your daughter. And this mess, this, we, we can mess this up. It can even creep into church if we're trying to create Martha's to get the job done. So it, it needs to dawn on us that God will never, ever love any of us more than he does right now at this moment. So the moral of the story is that we've got a God that loves to rescue, loves to seek, loves to find, right? And loves to rejoice in the finding, right? In the story, one son, I think, is, is kind of lost in the world. I think the other one's a little bit lost in religion trying to earn God's favor. One is lost in searching for answers. The other is lost in slaving to earn favor, to deserve whatever from God. I don't think this is really a story of a lost son. It's a story of two lost sons. 
and a wonderfully foolish father. So the question today is, where are you in the story? Taking life and doing it your way? Hope today's the day you come to your senses, come back home. Guess what? The younger brother didn't have to go through some program, get cleaned up first. He just had to take a step. Dad, make me. And dad brings the title back. That's my boy. That's my son. It's the dad who chases down the other one and says, this has always been yours. You've always had me. You've, you've never taken the time to celebrate. Why not? That one's on you. You could have celebrated every day. So I want to close this in prayer. I just want to say, if you're stuck in religion, maybe, the, maybe today's the day you tell God, okay, I kind of missed it. I kind of missed it. I'm your daughter. I've kind of missed it that I'm your son. I kind of missed it that I didn't earn anything. You've had bestowed that title on me through my faith in Christ. And maybe today's the day for others of you that this is finally making sense. You, you get it that you need God and you want him in your life. You're willing to give him you and ask him to make you. Either way, there's going to be a celebration in heaven to beat the band. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for opening our minds a little bit more to this story that we've heard so much.